Good afternoon, everyone. Thanks for coming. My name is Justin Logan. I'm the Associate Director of the Foreign Policy Studies Program here at Cato. Uh, and it's my pleasure to welcome you here today for our event uh, on Afghanistan. Uh, for once, uh, my uh, poor planning skills seem to have produced a good timing, at least, for this event. Um, and we're really pleased, I think, to have a fairly wide uh, range of opinion uh, on the changes that have been made to American Afghanistan strategy um, from a number of different angles. So I will do the polite thing and introduce everyone and then get myself out of the way uh, so that you can hear uh, thoughts from our presenters this afternoon. The first presenter is Joshua Rovner, who is the Associate Professor of Strategy and Policy at the U.S. Naval War College. He's the author of the very soon-to-be-released uh, Fixing the Facts, National Security and the Politics of Intelligence, which is forthcoming from Cornell University Press, uh, as well as a number of scholarly articles on intelligence reform, politics and strategy, nuclear proliferation, nuclear deterrence. His current research explores the intersection between IR theory and intelligence studies, deterrence theory and emerging nuclear powers, and contemporary grand strategy. <clears throat> Prior to joining the Naval War College, he taught at Williams College, Clark University, and Holy Cross, and he holds a PhD in political science from MIT. Second presenter this afternoon is my colleague, Malou Innocent, who's a foreign policy analyst here at Cato. Her current research focuses on U.S. foreign policy toward Pakistan, Afghanistan, and China. She traveled to Afghanistan and Pakistan uh, in 2008 and I believe 2010, Malou, is that correct, to do uh, research on the region? Um, she's published several reviews and articles on national security and international affairs in journals such as Survival, Foreign Policy, Armed Forces Journal, The Guardian, and many other outlets. She earned dual bachelor's degrees uh, from the University of California, Berkeley, and a master's in international relations from the University of Chicago. The third presenter this afternoon is Joshua Faust, who's a fellow at the American Security Project, a columnist for PBS Need to Know, and an author at the influential Central Asia blog, Registan.net. Uh, his research focuses on the role of market-oriented development strategies in post-conflict environments and on the development of metrics in understanding national security policy. He's written on strategic design for humanitarian interventions, decision-making, and counterinsurgency, and the intelligence community's place in the national security discussion. Pri previous to joining ASP, Josh worked for the U.S. intelligence community, where he focused on studying the non-militant socio-cultural environment in Afghanistan. I can't believe I got that out without a, yeah, garbling the words. Uh, at the U.S. Army H uh, Human Terrain System, the socio-cultural dynamics of irregular warfare movements at the National Ground Intelligence Center, and later he did work on political violence in Yemen at DIA. And the final speaker today probably needs no introduction to Washingtonians. Michael O'Hanlon is Director of Research and Senior Fellow in Foreign Policy at the Brookings Institution, where he specializes in U.S. defense strategy, the use of military force, homeland security, and American foreign policy. He's also a visiting lecturer at Princeton and an adjunct at Johns Hopkins and a member of IISS. His latest books are A Skeptic's Case for Nuclear Disarmament, The Science of War, and budgeting for hard power. He's also currently working on books on Afghanistan and the future of nuclear weapons policy and contributes to Brookings' Iraq, Pakistan, and Afghanistan indices. He's written several hundred op-eds in newspapers and appeared on television or spoken on the radio about 2,000 times since September 11, 2001, which is a pretty remarkable number of uh, 
uh, interviews. He holds a PhD, master's, and bachelor's degrees from Princeton University. So with that, I think we'll go one, two, three, four. Uh, Josh, Malou, Josh, Mike. So Josh. Thank you very much, Justin. Um, I want to div divide my comments today in, into two parts. And in the first part, I'm going to talk broadly about how we got here today and what were some of the underlying strategic assumptions that informed uh, American strategy in Afghanistan and why those assumptions were wrong. Uh, the second part of the talk, I'll, I'll briefly discuss where we're going um, and, and discuss whether or not the president's speech uh, signifies an important change in, in that strategy uh, or, whether it, or whether it doesn't. Okay, uh, I think there are two myths that have underwritten American strategy for the last several years, and these are the myths of safe havens and loose nukes. Uh, when my co-author, Austin Long, and I started working on this uh, a couple of years ago was the first surge debate in Afghanistan when people were already getting frustrated about uh, U.S. strategy. There seemed to be no agreement on some basic questions. Who is the enemy? What is the purpose of the war? What is our goal? So we decided to try to figure out what people did agree on, and it turns out there were two things. One, people agreed on both sides of the aisle that failure in Afghanistan would create the possibility for al-Qaeda to reclaim its safe haven. Right? You heard this all the time. Right? The other thing they agreed on is that failure in Afghanistan was very dangerous because it increased the chance of nuclear terrorism. After all, Afghanistan is right next door to Pakistan, a nuclear-armed power with its own insurgent problem. Right? So these were the things that people agreed on. There, there's this danger of safe havens and loose nukes. But we decided to look a little closer, and it turns out that neither of these assumptions really withstands close scrutiny. First, on, on safe havens, um, we hear this all the time. Failure in Afghanistan will allow al-Qaeda to reconstitute uh, its 1990s-style sanctuary. I heard it just recently from Ambassador Crocker, just the other day. He was using very vivid language to discuss this threat. Right? But in fact, a safe haven for al-Qaeda is, is not going to happen. And there are, there are important reasons why it's not going to happen. First of all, the 1990s are over. The 90s were a peculiar decade, right? a decade in which you saw the rise of al-Qaeda, a completely unique terrorist entity, very large, very well organized, very well resourced, dedicated to a bizarre worldview, and dedicated to killing large numbers of Americans. We've never seen anything like that before in terrorism. Right? That organization is gone. That organization is no longer present. Most of al-Qaeda's senior leaders in Afghanistan and Pakistan are either dead or in jail. Osama bin Laden, a very charismatic leader, is now gone at the bottom of the ocean. The funding stream has dried up. The, the organizational coherence, which marked al-Qaeda in the 1990s, has been shattered. So this is not an organization that can simply reestablish what it had in the 1990s. The other thing that's different is that American politics have changed. In the 90s, the United States was very shy about attacking terrorist targets. I think back at all of the hand-wringing that went on when people brought plans to the Clinton administration for attacks on Osama bin Laden and his friends. That is no longer controversial. There are great controversial controversies about American foreign policy today, but the opportunity to kill key members of al-Qaeda is not controversial at all. 
Moreover, if al-Qaeda tried to reestablish its safe haven, well, American commanders in theater would relish that opportunity. Right? The opportunity to simply target al-Qaeda bases, camps, centers, what have you, without having to get involved in the messy business of crossing the Pakistani border and dealing with that problem. Right? So the 1990s are over, and the safe haven fear has been wildly exaggerated. It's just not going to happen. The second broadly accepted assumption is that uh, failure in Afghanistan will lead to nuclear terrorism or make nuclear terrorism more likely because it would increase the chance that Pakistan would lose control of its nuclear arsenal. We hear this a lot. Right? We, we, we hear this a lot, but people are very vague about how it exactly would take place. Why is it that instability in one country would lead to instability in another country? And in fact, the more we thought about this issue, the more it sounded like the old-fashioned domino theory. In the Cold War, there was always an assumption that communist gains in one country would lead to communist gains in another country. So we have it today, where it's presumed that Taliban gains in Afghanistan will automatically lead to Taliban gains in Pakistan. There is no empirical evidence to support this proposition. The strength of the Pakistani insurgency has risen and fallen for reasons that have nothing to do with the war in Afghanistan. Right? As the Afghan Taliban has gotten weaker or stronger, that has not had any effect on the strength of the Pakistani insurgency. Right? These issues, in fact, are unrelated. Now, there are things that the United States can and should do to help Pakistan shore up its nuclear complex. This is an important issue, as it is for every nuclear power. And these include things like helping Pakistan implement its personnel and organizational reforms that it started to put in place about a decade ago to strengthen civilian control over the nuclear complex. We can also help Pakistan and India work on their diplomatic relations, although I have no illusions that that will be easy or, or quick. But over the long term, a denouement between Pakistan and India would possibly allow Pakistan to change its nuclear posture in a way that enhanced civilian control over it. Right? It's worth noting right now that these things are totally unrelated to what the United States does in Afghanistan from here forward. These issues are unrelated. So what are, what are the consequences of, of this analysis? If, if the safe haven argument is, is wrong, and if the loose nukes argument is wrong, well, what does that mean for American strategy in Afghanistan? What we think it means is that it argues for a much smaller counterterrorism force in country. If safe havens are not a concern, then we do not need to get involved in building a strong central Afghan state that can control all of Afghanistan's territory. We do not need to worry about that. We can adopt a much smaller presence uh, in the country. The estimates that we write about in the paper, we have it between 10 and 15,000 uh, troops. And this can be done. It would be much cheaper, much more affordable, much less costly in blood and treasure. And it would be more strategically coherent. It would allow the United States to once again tie its operations to the overriding goal of reducing the threat of terrorism rather than trying to continue on the quixotic quest to rebuild the Afghan state. Right? The United States, it turns out, is very good at counterterrorism. We're very good at finding terrorists and killing them. It's our comparative advantage. What we're not that good at is state building. 
the process of helping another country build up institutions almost from scratch and create them for the long term. I argue that we should focus on our comparative advantage in counterterrorism and not our comparative disadvantage in state building. How am I doing on time? You're fine. I'm good? All right, well, why don't I, why don't I stop there and turn it over? Thank you very much. Thank you, Justin, and thank you, everyone, for coming. It is a pleasure and a privilege to be here. I was asked to comment on Afghanistan, but within the context of South and Central Asia, an energy-rich, multi-ethnic region uh, with impressive rates of growth, though uh, plagued with daunting uh, challenges. As far back as 2009, the Obama administration called for pursuing greater regional diplomacy, but it is yet to pursue or at least uh, actually pr provide precise ideas about the content of such a negotiation that may reflect a lack of transparency but it may also reflect the very difficult nature of Washington's ability to have effective instruments to submerge the differences among neighboring countries in the pursuit of common objectives. What I don't want to do today is indulge in what I call the why bother mentality, but it is important to illuminate the difficulties that Washington will encounter if regional diplomacy is to have any reliable chance of success. I want to start by giving you a brief summary of the overriding interests of Afghanistan's major neighbors, and then talk to you about what factors would be necessary for an intensified diplomatic push. Let's start with a country that is well positioned to be a key player in Afghanistan, which is Iran. Western Afghanistan is very much part of Iran's sphere of influence. Tehran has made significant financial investments in the country's Hazara and Tajik communities. And Tehran maintains a constructive working relationship with the Afghan central government. Even though Iran can play a constructive role in a diplomatic resolution to Afghanistan, U.S.-Iranian relations are not on a positive footing, uh, to put it lightly. Tehran believes that Washington seeks to overthrow its regime, while the United States has led the effort to impose three rounds of multilateral sanctions on Iran to persuade it to abandon its nuclear program. The irony is that American and Iranian interests initially converged in Afghanistan. After 9-11, Tehran cooperated with Washington to overthrow the Taliban regime, and during the bond negotiations in December 2001, helped broker a compromise between President Karzai and the Northern Alliance. But for now, Iran and the United States seem unwilling to engage in diplomatic talks, much less make reciprocal concessions. This is one reason why what policymakers may perceive to be in America's best interests may not be synonymous with the pursuit of peace. The problem, of course, is that by isolating Iran or other countries, this will hurt the substance of negotiations and increase the incentive for these countries to sabotage a settlement. That said, Afghanistan's interests are not America's. And believing that they are one and the same will hinder the ability to shape a coherent regional strategy for Afghanistan. One country that does have great relations with both Iran and the United States is India. Washington and New Delhi share a core interest in Afghanistan and that both seek to ensure that no terrorist training camps targeting either country are set up there. Recently, Indian Prime Minister Manmohan Singh declared India's support for President Karzai's reconciliation efforts with the Taliban, although it is unclear whether India would accept all elements of national reconciliation with the hardline elements. In addition to providing Afghanistan with law enforcement and security training, India has also attempted to cement its long-term influence in Afghanistan through soft power, 
committing close to $2 billion in development assistance to Afghanistan since 2001, making it the largest regional donor and the fifth largest internationally. But despite these benefits, India's role in Afghanistan leads naturally to the next country, Pakistan, which perceives India's involvement in Afghanistan as a deliberate attempt to weaken and encircle it. It's that sense of insecurity that incentivizes Pakistan to continue its covert activities in Afghanistan with the objective of securing strategic depth by promoting a pliant Islamabad-friendly government in Kabul. Over time, that has translated into Pakistan attempting to protect its northwestern frontier through the de facto annexation of eastern Afghanistan and the adjoining Pashtun tribes. Naturally, this multi-decade policy has not endeared Pakistan to most Afghans. Because whatever Afghanistan's similarities with Pakistan, Afghans are a separate people striving for their own destiny. That bears emphasizing, given how Pakistan has tried to make Afghanistan integral to its own governing structure. The tragedy is that Afghanistan's centrality to Pakistan and the policies Islamabad has pursued in pursuit of that objective has unleashed the very forces currently destabilizing Pakistani society. One final note on Pakistan, by being a major player in Afghanistan's internal affairs, Pakistan has come to feel that it can manage the terms of a reconciliation agreement. And it's this perception that may temper Pakistan's eagerness to be more accommodating toward the United States. That leads me to the next country, which does enjoy uh, enduring relations with uh, Pakistan, and that is China. China's relations with the Afghan central government is based mainly on economic cooperation and the extraction of energy and natural resources, such as Beijing's over $3.5 billion investment in Afghanistan's INAC copper field in Logar. Cleverly, China would rather not get bogged down in the minutia of Afghan politics, but it is interested in a long-term development and regional trade strategy and securing security links, which I will discuss more in a bit. Earlier this month, China voted with the rest of the UN Security Council to separate Al-Qaeda and the Taliban when it comes to UN sanctions. According to Renmin University of China professor Jin Kanrong, China is ambivalent about the Taliban because, quote, China perceives that the Taliban have coalesced with the ethnic Pashtu majority and therefore hesitates to act against it, unquote. So the prevailing notion that Beijing is implacably opposed to the Taliban because of its own fraught relations with Uyghur separatists in Xinjiang, that seems to have changed a bit. China appears to distinguish the inviolability of Afghanistan's sovereign independence and from that, from its own eradication of its own domestic indigenous terrorists. We can learn from that. Another regional great power that has a problem with uh, is their own Islamic separatists and also seeks to forge long-term security and economic interests in Central Asia is Russia. Recently, the head of Russia's National Security Council, Nikolai Petrushev, said there is no military solution to the situation in Afghanistan. He also said that Moscow accepts the reintegration of different Taliban groups and is willing to be directly involved in improving the situation in Afghanistan. Aside from uh, trying to st stabilize the situation there and stemming the flow of Afghan drugs into its territory, Russia has other interests related to Afghanistan, which I will also discuss a, a bit uh, along with China. Moving right along, just sort of in the interest of time, are the former Soviet Central Asian republics bordering Afghanistan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, and Uzbekistan. These regimes are not identical, but, they, but many of them do suffer from the same, uh, similar problems at least, to a greater or lesser degree depending on the country, including organized crime, human and narcotics trafficking, refugee flows, and violent and nonviolent separatists and dissidents. 
Many analysts seem to be staking their hopes on Afghanistan becoming an economic hub, linking South and Central Asia for the transit of national resources. This would certainly improve uh, transportation links and bring in a great deal of infrastructure investment, but it'll take some time before the region stabilizes. In terms of the current security environment, recently Uzbekistan called for a long-term peace settlement in Afghanistan, and officials in, Uzbe in, in Turkmenistan have expressed a willingness to host peace talks. It's here where I want to pivot back to what I mentioned earlier about Russia and China and discuss more in depth the regional diplomacy angle and as it pertains to Central Asian republics and Afghanistan. As this being Washington, of course, I'm sure many of you are familiar with the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, or SCO. It's the Central Asian Security and Intelligence Pact led by China and Russia and made up of Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, and Uzbekistan. In 2005, the SCO established the SCO Afghanistan Contact Group with the common goals of expanding security, trade, and energy development. Although Afghanistan is aggressively lobbying for a formal observer status within SCO, it is too early to tell if and when the organization would formally incorporate Afghanistan into its security structure. But as journalist Eric Wahlberg recently wrote, quote, the SCO is the only major international organization that has neither the US nor any close US ally among its members, and its influence is growing across Eurasia, unquote. It is on this note I want to tell you about the SCO and its indirect statements about the indefinite presence of US military bases in the region. After 9-11, many surrounding countries around Afghanistan saw the value of US efforts to combat militants in Afghanistan. Russia even allowed the United States to ship lethal and non-lethal equipment into Afghanistan through its territory. But both Russia and China have since stated their uneasiness about the possibility of the permanent stationing of US forces in their backyard. They did so first at the SCO summit in 2005 when it called for a timetable for the withdrawal of US forces, and after which also Uzbekistan requested that the United States also va vacate its K-2 airbase after Washington's condemnation of Uzbekistan's human rights abuses. In 2007, once again, the SCO, uh, at the SCO summit, the organization released a joint statement asking for the United States, uh, actually for the foreign-led troop presence to re be reduced and sort of discouraged foreign-led efforts rather than regional efforts to try and stabilize Afghanistan. This was right around the time when Vladimir Putin placed strategic bombers on long-range patrol for the first time since the end of the Cold War. At the SEO's most recent meeting on June 15th, the organization was explicit about its intention to assume greater responsibility for Afghanistan after the U.S.-NATO withdrawal. They called for a, quote, neutral, unquote, Afghanistan, presumably without the permanent stationing of the United States. Currently, the group is considering the full membership applications of Pakistan, India, Mongolia, and Iran. It is too early to declare the diffusion of American power or the beginning of uh, a new world order, a multipolar new world order. But Russia and China do appear to be using the SCO as a vehicle to develop a more united and coherent regional strategy. Whether the SCO can suppress the conflicting security interests of its member states is unknowable. But its current cooperation, at least in part, derives from an inclination to balance against the presence of US and NATO troops, even as Washington has provided some SCO member states with military and counterterrorism assistance. Now that I've briefly gone over uh, some of the overriding interests of Afghanistan's neighbors, I want to just talk briefly about some of the conditions that might be necessary for a successful diplomatic push. First, as is most, most obvious, 
all parties would have to be sufficiently dedicated to reaching a consensus on what constitutes a manageable peace. This does not have to be perfect, but interests merely have to overlap and converge on certain core issues. One area where this might prove somewhat problematic is determining what constitutes non-interference. For example, Pakistan remains suspicious about Indian activities in Afghanistan, and it remains so sensitive to these Indian activities in Afghanistan that they've actually uh, determined that even development assistance to Afghanistan is a means for India to expand its influence throughout the region, and they also consider this a threat to their own territorial integrity. So determining what assistance Afghanistan needs is going to be very critical to any sort of power sharing agreement for regional diplomacy. And getting these countries to think otherwise will require them to fundamentally shift how they perceive the interests and intentions of their enemies. A second important factor, which we can discuss a little more in Q&A, is that if and when a power sharing agreement is reached, it would presumably demand some type of enforcement mechanism to guarantee compliance and monitor the agreement. The terms of that would have to be settled as well, of course, beforehand, as to whether the agreement could be impervious to outside pressures, or if a single suicide bombing could sink the entire agreement. And again, I can discuss more of that in the Q&A. But in conclusion, I think diplomacy will not be a panacea. I think those who aren't for diplomacy use that sort of as a, as a, uh, a straw man argument. I don't assume that diplomacy will be easy. Cobbling together an Afghan government that has the support of all its key neighbors will be incredibly difficult. And although I am a proponent of peace, my concern is that with regional diplomacy, much like the current state building effort, the United States might be making yet another commitment beyond its ability to carry out. Regional diplomacy will be a time-intensive and painstaking process, and American leaders must be serious about entering into good faith negotiations, even with states they consider to be their enemies. Thank you. Hello, everyone. So I'm going to speak very quickly about why negotiations with the Taliban will help unravel everything we've achieved in Afghanistan. <laughs> so I think over the last couple of days, both the hospital bombing in Logar province and yesterday's rather horrific attack at the Intercontinental Hotel in Kabul have been evidence of something that a lot of people, including myself, who have advocated the opening of negotiation talks with the Taliban uh, have been a little unwilling to acknowledge. And that is a fact that at the end of the day, despite the general path that insurgencies take, which is some kind of defeat or negotiated settlement with the government if they don't win, at the end of the day, the Taliban and other insurgent groups that are busy committing acts of violence in Afghanistan are unbelievably brutal. And they don't shy away from butchering innocent people, from going after women, the sick, the elderly, the children, and reconciling these people to the national government of Afghanistan is such a tall order that I don't actually think it can be accomplished. Part of the reason for this being the case is the nature of the insurgency itself, which over the last two years has become increasingly fractured, has lost any sense of unifying purpose behind it, and by and large does not seem responsive at least when people speak about it openly, to negotiating. I think a big reason why these negotiations that we're trying to do with the Taliban are such a bad idea is because they don't address the fundamental political issues that are driving the war in Afghanistan. The current round of U.S.-sponsored negotiations comes about nine years too late into the process. 
The time to be negotiating with the Taliban was 2002, when they were excluded from every political organization that could have been possible inside of Afghanistan. Moreover, the next time that the Taliban should have been included in a, in a negotiations process was 2009, during the first of President Obama's three surges of troops into the country. That is when you begin negotiating with an insurgency, when your strength is still peaking, when it's growing, and when you can still maintain the credible threat that it will continue to grow. You don't wait until you've already announced your first round of withdrawals to begin negotiating with an insurgency. One of the reasons why the Taliban needed to have been included in 2002, and it's always easy to rehash the past, but it's important to get into, is because there has never been, from the perspective of the international community, a comprehensive political framework for how Afghanistan will be settling out its future. We thought we had that when we essentially forced a modified version of the 1963 Constitution at the Bonn Accords in 2002. But what this really amounted to was an acquiescence of the political demands of a very small coterie of powerful warlords in Afghanistan that we had allied ourselves with to kick the Taliban out of power. We should have reached out to the Taliban in the course of doing that, even though they were exiled, even though they were defeated and we chose not to care about them having run away into Pakistan. That was the time when you needed to reach out to the insurgents to include them in any kind of political future so that they wouldn't continue to resort to violence to resolve their political disputes. And I think part of the reason why there has been no fundamental political framework for trying to understand and then eventually solve the conflicts in Afghanistan is because ultimately there's no strategy governing the war. President Obama has announced his ultimate goal in Afghanistan is the defeat of al-Qaeda, which is great. We all want that. He's announced it being achieved through the development of a stable Afghan government. Great. We all want that. And he thinks that can be achieved through the development of functional Afghan security forces, which is also great. We all want that. That's not a strategy, though. That is a preferred end state. And it's something that I think everyone could pretty universally agree is a good idea. But it's not actually an, a framework for what you're trying to accomplish at the end of the day. And it says nothing about the means that you're going to use to accomplish that framework. So when we look at how this kind of framework could have worked out and how this kind of end state could have worked out, I mean, these, these are, are broader issues that need to be discussed as a whole at a national level that still tend not to be, despite the, the, the growing push to have negotiations and part of this is because of the confusion over how we discuss the war. And it's interesting that uh, Mr. Rovner brought up Ambassador Crocker's testimony before Congress. I think that was kind of a watershed moment in the discussion of the war, along with General Petraeus's recent testimony as well, in which progress is constantly trumpeted, but it's trumpeted in such a limited and very carefully phrased way that it ends up obscuring the more fundamental political issues that are driving the war. As one example, there's been a series of reports that have come out recently, both from the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and then also, I believe, a national intelligence estimate that discuss the military's ability to provide security to an area, which they can do, and they're very good at doing it. And I don't think anyone could deny that where they have massed their forces and really put their minds to it, they've been effective at providing security to communities. But what the military is not effective at doing is building institutions in their wake. And this is something that the previous two people have, have mentioned. The State Department is not good at building institutions where it sends people out into the field. The US Agency for International Development is not good at building institutions, at creating the trappings of government when it moves into an area. 
These are just skill sets that we don't have and we're not very good at. But when you go back to President Obama's preferred end state for the war of leaving a functional Afghan government in our wake, these are essential skills to have and we don't have them. So when we look at how these negotiations are supposed to happen, in a way they're happening in a strategic vacuum. They're happening without a clear sense of an end state that is achievable. They're happening without a clear sense of what we want to accomplish through the process of negotiations. And that's because for the last several years, I'd guess probably going back to 2002, strategy in Afghanistan has been following policy. So we've looked at what we want to do and then tried to figure out some kind of strategic framework to shoehorn that policy into. And that's backwards. In reality, we should be looking at our strategic objectives in the region, some of which Malou went over, some of which Mr. Rovner has gone over. And from that strategy, you then derive the policies that you think will achieve it. So when we look at what the political issues are, what the political framework in Afghanistan is that we need to be focusing on, I think we can look at a couple of issues. One is the constitution of Afghanistan. In a very real way, the, we designed the Afghan government to be fundamentally dysfunctional. We created the most centralized government on the planet. We staffed it with a leader whose only means of leveraging influence was money. And then we complained when that resulted in a corrupt and dysfunctional system. And in a way, that's kind of petulant. So when we look at the Taliban and say, the only way under which we will begin a process of negotiations with you is if you accept this constitution that has resulted in a broken, dysfunctional, corrupt government. In a way, that's admitting that we have no confidence in the process of negotiations. Not only is it demanding the Taliban in effect surrender since their primary complaint is with the government and with the international forces there, but we're also demanding that they buy into the very government that is driving people to join the Taliban. This comes back to the fact that there is no political framework guiding the process of negotiations and no political strategy guiding the war. In addition, the makeup of the government also poses several large issues. While many Pashtuns in the South will complain that the government is primarily Tajik, and a lot of the government is Tajik, it's not. Most of the cabinet ministers in Kabul are Pashtun. But that perception that the government is ethnically biased, that it is designed to exclude Pashtuns out of the South, is actually a major issue that people really haven't figured out yet. Looking at the makeup of how, that was a misstatement, looking at this perception of the makeup of the government also indicates the problem of a political framework. If people think the government is designed to exclude them because of their ethnicity, they are going to be less inclined to feel a need to buy into the government. This, again, gets back at the fundamental issue of there being no political framework for the war. When we look at Afghanistan's armed forces as well, you see a similar bias coming into play. Most officers in the Afghan National Army really are Tajik. Most of the police forces that we have sent, we, the international community, have sent into southern Afghanistan are Hazara, who not only are kind of the most hated ethnic group in the rest of Afghanistan, most of them don't even speak Pashto, and they're being asked to perform police functions in an area that's already inclined to dislike them where they don't speak the language. This, again, is because we make these kinds of decisions without any regard to the political context in which they take place.
because there's no political strategy guiding the war policy. So backing up and looking at this new push that President Obama has to negotiate with the Taliban, to come up with some kind of unified political settlement that will in some way allow the United States to withdraw with honor from the war, it misses the point. Negotiations will not address the fundamental political questions that are currently driving the insurgency. They won't address the fundamental complaint that most Afghans have with their government, which is that it is corrupt and ineffective, predatory, and in a lot of ways unresponsive to what they want. It won't address complaints about representation and the recent decision by the Supreme Court to invalidate most of the parliamentary elections is another way that this is getting played out. That decision has sparked the renewal of a pan-ethnic alliance in the north of Afghanistan that is opposing President Karzai's attempt to reposthumize the parliament. This is something that Afghans understand, I think, at a very fundamental level. They understand that there are politics at play. They know how to play politics. They understand how politics work. The United States doesn't seem to. And you can see that, whether it's the blundering statements that General Petraeus makes in Kabul when Afghans complain about civilian casualties, or the way that Americans tend to craft these grand political schemes for the country without the slightest inclination that they care about what Afghans actually want to happen to themselves. So because these negotiations are not in the service of any grander political framework or strategy besides withdrawal, I don't see why we should really express any optimism that they'll have a meaningful effect on the war. And all of this ignores the very salient fact that because the insurgency is fractured and because our official policy over the last several years has been to politically fracture the opponents of the Karzai regime, that negotiations are even less likely to have any effect than they would have been had we tried not to. So I guess we can leave alternatives for the Q&A because I'm out of time, but thank you. Hi, everyone. Good afternoon. It's nice to be part of this forum. Thanks for the invitation. I thought what I would do to keep the conversation moving and ease us into discussion is to respond primarily uh, to the opening paper and also to a couple of the other comments that I've heard since and just do so fairly briefly. And to some extent, uh, I'll begin by uh, disagreeing on a couple of points with Josh, but it's a nuanced disagreement in, this, in the following sense. I'm a fairly strong supporter of the current strategy, but I can't, and of course no one can guarantee it's going to work. Uh, and I would concede that if it doesn't, I'm going to have to like his strategy a lot more than I want to. Uh, because that's the obvious thing to try next, although there's some problems with hoping that it's even feasible, and I'll get to those in just a second. Uh, but having said that, let me just, not in the interest of trying to create a big debate, but in the interest of just trying to create a little nuance, uh, try to comment on a couple of Josh's points, and then also talk about a political strategy, uh, the issue that the other Josh uh, <laughs> highlighted. Um, first of all, on this issue of, of safe havens, uh, whether or not they could be restored, whether or not it matters as much as it used to. I would probably agree that it's not likely to matter as much as it once did. The 1990s are over, as Josh said. Having said that, uh, I don't know too many counterterrorism experts who would say that sanctuaries don't matter in general any longer. We're certainly very worried about what's happening in Yemen right now for this reason, not only because we were attacked out of Yemen, uh, last year, but because things have gotten a lot more anarchic since, and anarchy is a good place for terrorists to look for sanctuaries. 
And by the way, I am presuming that if we draw down fast enough, we could very well wind up with anarchy or a Taliban control again in southern and eastern Afghanistan. Uh, I don't think that the Taliban are likely to take over nationally under any circumstances that I can imagine, because I think we've done enough by now to strengthen other groups and other institutions that, at a minimum, uh, Tajik, Uzbek, Hazara uh, groups would survive and maintain some kind of a rump Afghanistan in the north and west. So I think the worst case scenario that I can imagine is a swath of southern and eastern Afghanistan that becomes anarchic or Taliban controlled. But I think that's pretty bad. That would be the largest sanctuary by far in the world for not only al-Qaeda potentially, um, but Lashkar-e-Taiba, the group that tried in the Mumbai attacks of 2008 to spark an Indo-Pakistani potentially nuclear war, and for the Pakistani Taliban. And I'll come to that issue in just a second. Um, one more way, by the way, in which it's no longer the 1990s is that al-Qaeda, while it's decimated in its leadership ranks, is also in some ways smarter than they were in the 1990s. They have created a diaspora or global network of largely autonomous groups. Now, you could say that makes the importance of any one sanctuary less, and I would probably agree. So again, my disagreement is nuanced. But it also means that al-Qaeda doesn't go out and use cell phones and doesn't go out and, and use satellite phones and do other things that telegraph where they are. They have learned to operate in a way that makes it harder for us to figure out where they are unless we are essentially breathing down their neck with human intelligence networks that you cannot create from standoff range. You cannot create from hundreds of miles away. So if al-Qaeda returns to a Taliban-run southern Afghanistan, it will locate itself in the cities. It will be a Gaza-like, Hamas-like, or Hezbollah-like presence, the way those groups operate in cities in the broader Middle East. They won't just take out some big area and say, here we are, in case you want to come strike us. It'll be more complex. And you could also argue it'll be less threatening. And so again, my argument is nuanced and my disagreement is limited. But I think these points are worth putting on the table, although I appreciated the spirit of Josh's very assertive and provocative argument. Uh, I think a couple of these points need to be at least partially contested. Uh, third issue, on the issue of cross-border spillover, and again, getting to the Pakistani Taliban, to what extent could they make use of an Afghan sanctuary to potentially threaten their own country, maybe even its fundamental political stability, maybe even its nuclear arsenal? I would simply point out that it is, again, an accepted premise of people who study these problems that what happens across the border matters a lot, which is part of why so many people are pessimistic about Afghanistan. And I would concede that the presence of sanctuaries for Afghan terrorists and insurgents on Pakistani soil is a big problem and a big reason why we have to be wary about our prospects in Afghanistan. But by the same token, reversing uh, the logic were the Pakistani Taliban to have a sanctuary in Afghanistan, it would certainly be undesirable, to put it mildly. And I don't need to spend a lot of time reminding you all of some of the civil wars around the world where we've seen this kind of dynamic, whether it's in Central Africa, some of the wars centered on Congo and Rwanda, whether it's in Central America, whether it's in the Colombia, Venezuela area. What happens on one side of a border matters a lot for the other side in civil war and insurgency. And so, um, that's both a problem for our Afghanistan campaign, but it also does, to some extent, keep the stakes moderately high, because Pakistan does remain right next door. Um, just a couple more points. One, on the issue of this 10 to 15,000 strong force, and again, I may wind up in Josh's corner in a year or two, if, if that's the only way I can see uh, to, to limit the terrorist threat, but you do have to ask the question, by the way, who's going to grant us the rights to have that 10 to 15,000 strong counterterrorist force in southern Afghanistan if southern Afghanistan has been lost to the Taliban? So, you know, we tend to presume uh, 
Vice President Biden is said to presume that whatever drawdown path we wind up on, Bagram and Kandahar Airfield will still be there. Uh, why do you assume that? Now, the Vice President, I shouldn't be unfair to him because he is at least part of an administration that's on a gradual drawdown path. But going down to 10 to 15,000 right away, I think, creates a big risk of losing the entire South, at which point I don't think you have those bases, at least not to be taken for granted. And that worries me if we wind up having to go with Josh's strategy, which I admit, again, that I cannot rule out as a potential necessary backup plan. And then finally, just one more um, smaller uh, you know, area of, uh, of alternative point of view. Again, not so much flat-out disagreement, but more nuanced uh, point. Um, Josh says we're bad at counterinsurgency, and my good friend Gordon Adams liked, likes to make this point, too. And I would tend to say to you, who says? You know, uh, we got up to a horrible start in Iraq. We made a lot of very bad decisions the first few years. We wound up not too bad at counterinsurgency. We historically have had some places where we've been okay, the Philippines 100 years ago. Uh, some, some examples in, in uh, closer to home Caribbean and Central American uh, areas since. However, I will concede a couple of things right away. First of all, we often get it wrong. We often get it wrong for a while before we get it right. And the most important point, and I'm betting on this one, Josh and I can agree, it's hard to do. It's hard to do inherently. And so we shouldn't try to do it too often. And we certainly shouldn't expect that it's going to be a swimming quick success. But let's remember, we're halfway through the intense phase of this Afghanistan strategy. And I'm not going to try to parrot uh, uh, President Obama, General Petraeus, or Secretary Clinton, or any of the other administration figures who last week told us all the good things that are happening in Afghanistan, because there are an equal number of bad things happening in Afghanistan. And the verdict right now is mixed. But we are in a place in the campaign plan where we have roughly gotten two-thirds of the way to building up the Afghan security forces into, I think, a potentially viable force. And on that point, before I very quickly pivot and address one comment that Josh made, let me say, I've been trying to learn a little bit about what happened yesterday at the Intercontinental, and I, I know we all have, uh, and there's still an effort to figure out exactly what information is correct. But let me just share with you one aspect of this terrible tragedy that I think actually should be somewhat encouraging, which is the performance of the Afghan security forces. Now, some newspaper critiques have argued that because we had to have a NATO helicopter overhead involved in picking off a couple of the terrorists from a rooftop position that it proves that the Afghan forces are actually not up to snuff. Well, the latest information I have is that we indeed, we NATO, did indeed kill two of the nine. The other seven were killed by a combination of the private security guards at the hotel, five of whom lost their lives in the effort, four uh, Afghan police in their special operations police unit, um, and then perhaps a couple of other casualties throughout the Afghan forces. This should be, I think, for people on the left, right, and center, at least somewhat encouraging. The fact that the attack occurred is terrible. The way in which the Afghans have provided most of the capability to respond to it is, I think, reason for hope. And for me, reason that we should sustain this gradual drawdown towards 2014, more or less along the way we have outlined. I'll just make one point, because I know I've already gone on for my 10 minutes. Uh, but, I, but Josh did raise it. The other Josh raised a very important question about political strategy. I agree with him very much that this is an area in need of major improvement. Um, and I would just make a couple of quick points. And I'm just going to tick them off in the interest of time with apologies that I'm being cryptic. Uh, but one of them is we have to remind President Karzai. And you know he's not a bad guy. He's a complex guy. And he's a guy that we have asked to do impossible things and changed our own ground rules for how to evaluate him in the course of the last 10 years. But we have to remind him, 2014, you stepped down. It's a firm, 
stipulation in the Afghan Constitution. No one can have more than two terms. We don't get into the issue that President Putin's addressing of whether you get to have another term after you took one off. Flat-out prohibition against the third term in the Afghan Constitution. I think that's very important for Afghanistan's future democracy that we hold President Karzai to that. Not in a confrontational way. You know, I'd love it if he was the next Afghan foreign minister for the next Afghan president. But I think we need to be pretty clear on that. Second, we blew it with the Constitution, with our role in the Constitution. And whether it was defensible at the time or not, there is way too much power in the hands of the Afghan president. And we need to help Afghans think through various options, which they will have to choose from. But we have to help them think through options for how to not so much weaken the presidency as strengthen other institutions. And I've been trying to think about that with a friend, uh, Gretchen Burkle from IRI, and Hasina John, who's an Afghan um, living in Kabul, and trying to think through some of the practical steps one could take. Thankfully, we have Ambassador Ryan Crocker going out, uh, and I think he'll be sensitive to some of these issues himself. And finally, and on this, uh, on this general note, just one more point, which is that we need, I think, also to uh, strengthen and enable and prop up new Afghan political parties or maybe strengthened versions of the old parties. Again, the Afghans will choose what they do with those parties, how many they want, uh, who heads them. All those decisions are sovereign decisions for the Afghan people. But we were complicit in a decision around 0304 to essentially prohibit the juxtaposition of political parties with campaigns. People don't tend to run for office in Afghanistan under a political party. I think it's a very bad idea, because what's the alternative? You run based on your personality, your patronage network, or your ethnicity. We need Afghans to think about political party development in a central, meaningful, conceptual way. And that should be the agenda for a lot of our political strategy, instead of just harping on whether or not peace talks with the Taliban are going to produce uh, you know, a Hail Mary breakthrough. Because whether they should be carried out or not, and I tend to support a realistic approach towards them, they are very unlikely to produce big results. And so we should not think of those as the cornerstone of our political strategy. The cornerstone of our political strategy is thinking ahead to 2014. And if you get that right, it'll trickle back to the present and help Afghans have better debates, I think, right now about corruption and anti-corruption, about distribution of powers, and about inclusiveness of many different points of view and tribes in their politics. Uh, and that's what they really need to stop the insurgency. They need more people to feel buy-in to this new state. We've got to help them create a political uh, system and a political arena for competition that facilitates that. Thanks. Thanks very much, Michael. We, I should say, in the interest of disclosure, we explicitly invited Michael O'Hanlon in the hopes that he would find some things to spur debate, and you've ably done that, I think. So thank you very much for that. Um, Josh, do you, there are some few, you, you, you ran a little bit short, and there are some items on the table. Did you want to clean a little bit, or? I, I would like to respond to, to a couple of, of Michael's comments. Um, in the interest of debate, I like debate, so <laughs> let's do it. Um, First, Michael mentioned that there are sanctuaries and that some militants do find sanctuaries, and I agree. The point is not all sanctuaries are created equal. Right? The Afghan Taliban have found some measure of sanctuary in Pakistan because, to some degree, they've got the support of the Pakistani state. That's what makes it a good sanctuary, and that's what gives U.S. commanders inhibitions about crossing the Duran line to attack them. 
But consider the alternative. If Pakistani Taliban tried to find sanctuary in Afghanistan, then the Afghan Taliban would risk losing their Pakistani government mentors. And I promise you, the Pakistan military would have no inhibitions about crossing the border to kill them. In fact, just in the last few days, we've seen reports that President Karzai is complaining that the Pakistani military is already doing this. So the sanctuaries are, are, are substantively different. And the Pakistan one has been pretty good. And the Afghan sanctuary will be lousy. Uh, a, a second point, and this issue of intelligence and counterterrorism intelligence, um, it is possible to get offshore intelligence against terrorism. We've, we've done it for a long time. We've been, we've been killing terrorists in Somalia since as early as 1993 with no American land presence. We've been killing terrorists in Yemen since at least 2002 with no American land presence. We've been killing terrorists in Pakistan for, for the last several years with no on-the-ground American intelligence. To say that this, this, this can't be done is, 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 is to betray the historical record. It can be done, and it's something that we've done very effectively. A, a third comment, this issue of, of spillover uh, as, a, as a consequence of civil war, there, there's no consensus among scholars that this is the inevitable outgrowth of civil war. Right? And this is, this, is a, this is another long-held bit of conventional wisdom that civil wars will ultimately spell, spill over into their neighboring countries. Um, just because a lot of people says, say that this happens doesn't mean that it's correct. In, in fact, civil wars have a tendency to suck in violence from abroad, not to spill it outwards. Right? And I think the greater danger in places like Iraq and Afghanistan is that violence would come into the country, not expand elsewhere. I think this issue needs a lot more scrutiny and shouldn't be accepted as, as given wisdom. Uh, a fourth comment on, on, on your idea that we need to clarify what government will help us control Bagram and, and Jalalabad. It's a, it's a fair point. In the paper that we wrote for Cato, we discussed this briefly. Uh, my co-author, Austin Long, has also discussed this at length, what we would need to do to create uh, an Afghan state, uh, a weak, centralized, basically a rump state that would allow us to, to, to continue this counterterrorism mission. And I'd point you to his article in Orbis from 2009, in which he, he lays it out in, in some detail. We make no, we're under no illusions. The, the, the plan that we are in favor of would, would yield a lot of territory to the Taliban, just not the important territory. Uh, finally, on, on, on the optimistic note that we get better at, at counterinsurgency, I, I don't know. I, I, I think that the Iraq story is, is, is far from over. And I think that what made things better in Iraq had a lot to do with the nasty civil war that took place in Iraq and the massive amount of ethnic cleansing that took place in that country, which essentially divided the country along ethnic lines. I think that was much more important than our, than our innovation in counterterrorism doctrine or counterinsurgency doctrine. More to the point, I, I think the counterinsurgency debate misses the point. I said that I didn't mention that we're not good at counterinsurgency. I said we're not good at state building. And if you think about Afghanistan as a state building exercise, it looks a lot nastier. Right? We tend to have convinced ourselves that state building is, is the process of making a government more legitimate, and providing services, and winning the hearts and minds of people so they'll flock to the government. But that's not what state building is about. State building is a nasty, bloody contest for political control. 
and the people that are involved in state building, especially in anarchic societies like Afghanistan, are vicious and corrupt. They don't get into state building for no reason. They want to get paid and they want power, right? This is what happened in the whole history of the European state building experience, which lasted centuries. It was ugly, it was violent, and at the end of the day, it was about coercing people to obey the government. That's what state building is about, right? If we want to get involved in the state building process in Afghanistan, right, where it's really in early days, we need to be prepared to stay for decades and invest massively into that country. This is not simply a, a, a matter of changing counterinsurgency doctrine. This is coming to grips with the fundamental political issues that are going on there. Return volley, or can we work back in? No, let, yeah, let's work it into to the Q and A. Terrific. This is making me feel like I'm back at university. It's terrific. I like it. Um, we're going to go to Q and A now. There's going to be a microphone that will come around. I'll ask everyone with a question to raise your hand when uh, called upon. Wait for the microphone. Identify yourself in any affiliation, and uh, please make your questions brief so we can take lots of them. Uh, so, I'll, right here on the aisle, gentleman, right there. Uh, my name is Kami, but I write for the Pakistani Spectator, and my question is that how far we American would go against Pakistanis once they start what we reconfigurated Afghanistan in the favor of India. India has a good leverage against Pakistan in the form of playing or fooling around in Balochistan like Pakistan used to have in Indian control Kashmir. And of course, the minute we leave, Pakistani are already ready to fight Indian and kick them out or have them pack their bags. How far we would go to defend Indian interest in Afghanistan? And my second question, I think, isn't that state building that there are thousands of girls who are able to go to school? It's done by USAID. It's done by Department of State. Shouldn't these institutions get some kind of credit for that? Thanks. I got the first question. Did we get the second? I, I'm not sure I understood the second question. Uh, did you? It's, it's, it's not. I think the question was, don't we deserve more credit for the state building efforts we've done through USID and, and other institutions? I, I, I certainly um, don't criticize their effort. I don't criticize the, their, their well-meaning effort at, at building local institutions. Right? They do a lot of hard work. I, I just think the tragedy of it is that this misses the, the underlying process that's going, that's going on right now. There's a reason that people are killing and dying, and they're killing and dying as in, in a contest for political control, where there's no hierarchy, right? or, where, or where there's only a very loose hierarchy in much of the country. That's the, that's the nasty process of state building. And, 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 and the gut-wrenching part is that we do spend a lot of time and a lot of money trying to do things like building schools and, and building local institutions, but I think it's probably all for naught. And I think just to follow up on that a little bit, every accountability institution that we have in this country, so including uh, congressional reports, including SIGAR, including the GAO, uh, their constant refrain about reconstruction efforts is that there's no follow through, there's very little accountability. We don't know if we've actually built what we've paid for. We can't follow through to make sure that people are doing what they say they're doing. And in a lot of cases, even when it comes to schools, we build a lot of them and a lot of them sit empty. But then the people who run them still claim that there are thousands of children going and get paid for it. So, I mean, yeah, good things have happened, but we really don't know how much they've happened. And a lot of the things we try to take credit for really haven't taken place. Um, can I take a gander at the, at the Pakistan question as well? Sure. Um, I think what's, what we've seen over the last two years is an evolution in U.S. 
uh, probably the last three years or so is an evolution in the U.S. posture towards Pakistan. Um, in particular, uh, when George W. Bush and Pervez Musharraf were in charge, I think there was a lot of deferential back and forth between the two of them, and that there was an understanding that Bush wouldn't push too hard for things, and that Musharraf wouldn't push back too hard when something went across the border. After the two of them have left office, I think there's been a very distinct reversal of that. And especially the way that the Pakistani security services have reacted in the wake of Osama bin Laden's death has shown that there is an unwillingness, at least among some people within the Pakistani security sector, to go along with an increased American adventurism inside the territory of Pakistan. As far as how far the U.S. would be willing to push in order to get what we want out of Pakistan, that's something that someone like President Obama is ultimately going to have to answer because that comes down to what sort of risk he's willing to undertake in terms of pushback that the Pakistanis would give, what he's willing to risk in terms of having access to our supply routes cut out. Uh, going through Quetta, going through Peshawar, and then also what he's willing to risk in terms of social and political blowback. And I think we got an early preview of that with Raymond Davis's saga earlier this year, and that it, 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 the Pakistani state, at least the portions of it that object to U.S. policy there, are very good at ginning up anti-American sentiment, and that's something that U.S. policymakers right now are very sensitive to. So I don't think you're going to see a really adventurous push but there's definitely going to be a strident sense of still asserting the right to go after terrorists that are hiding out in the Northwest. Did you want Indo-Pak or state building, Maluk? Sure. I, I don't think any amount of pressure, persuasion, or really sort of uh, get Pakistan to do our bidding or to do what we like. I think the last 10 years have proven that to be the case. In fact, when we've seen after 88, 89, when we slapped sanctions on Pakistan for its nuclear program, the Pakistanis realized that the United States is a fair-weather friend, and for very legitimate reasons. Uh, we left them holding the bag in 1989 uh, once we left, and that also uh, begs the question, should we have been funding the Mujahideen in the first place, given, in hindsight, uh, the sort of blowback that we've seen within the Pakistani state in the Muslim world more broadly. Um, so I think the real issue is how much we can not only just pressure Pakistan, which I think is just, again, impossible, but I think there, I think if I got your question correct, how much we can also pressure India uh, in terms of how that provokes uh, a great deal uh, of sort of existential crisis within the Pakistani state. I don't foresee us using any sort of leverage or pressure against India because we seek to sort of build cooperative relations with India as a balance to China. I just see that as a sort of long-term 21st century great power uh, balance. You can People can disagree with that. Reasonable people, people can. Um, in terms of your second question with regards to USAID and state building, no one would deny that Afghanistan looks much uh, better than it did 10 years ago. Uh, that said, it also has helped a great deal of the local elites, the petty elites, uh, who profit a great deal from, from the U.S. Uh, aid money and international aid money. We've seen uh, millions, if not billions, shipped out into Dubai to build uh, development projects there. Uh, I think also another issue is that U.S. foreign aid, uh, to a great degree, benefits foreign over local interests. Uh, most estimates show that between 35 and 40 percent of the money given to Afghanistan goes right back to Washington in the form of consultancy fees and what have you. Um, so I think, certainly, you know, we can talk about the benefits of nation building, but we also have to talk about the costs. Let's go, uh, let's go right here on the aisle on this side. Hi, my name is Jerry Murnay, private citizen. I got a perspective question for anyone. We always say the Taliban. Everything I read is the Taliban. Does anybody have any idea what the engaged, card-carrying population is of the Taliban, both war fighters and their handlers, anybody who's really engaged? Just what would a number be? What are we looking at? 
if we, you know, persist in this face-to-face uh, -face business for, yeah, you know, McCain said we'll be there 100 years when he was campaigning for president, you know, I, I'm, I wouldn't doubt it. Anybody Very good have question. A, any perspective? Who is the Taliban and how many are they? So most, all right, um, <laughs> so you could probably break the Taliban out into anywhere between 15 and 37 groups, depending on how you count different factions and different leaders and sub-leaders and factions within those factions, um, which is a non-answer I know, but it's a, a long way of saying that we don't have a good understanding of who the Taliban are. And referring to the Taliban usually ends up referring only to the Taliban that are responsible to Mullah Omar operating out of Quetta. There are, within groups that call themselves the Afghan Taliban, I can think of four major groups beyond that, including people like the Haqqanis, people like Hizbi Islami. Um, you, can, you can break that out as much as you want. The most recent estimate that I've seen of actual card-carrying Taliban, even though they don't actually have cards, is from uh, the Afghan Deputy Minister of Defense, and like three months ago, I think, he estimated there were something like 25,000 insurgents uh, active inside Afghanistan. Now, how many of those constitute kind of, I, I despise the phrase $10 a day Taliban, but kind of the casual foot soldier type who fight seasonally or who fight for specific local issues that aren't actual jihadis, I have no idea what the breakdown is. Uh, we, we don't have, in a general sense, a very good understanding of precisely how many people there that we're dealing with. Somewhere between five and 37 groups and either 25,000 or not 25,000. Yeah. Great, that's fair. Just to, just to follow up very, very briefly, um, I, I, I think the point that there are so many groups that all claim the mantle of Taliban is important, right? Because th these, are, these are varying groups. Sometimes they have overlapping interests and sometimes they fight each other ferociously. And, and the reason that matters is that that pours cold water on this domino theory. Right? Remember, the domino theory is that as the strength of Taliban in Afghanistan increases, so too will the strength of Taliban in Pakistan. But if these are multiple groups with their own individual priorities that sometimes clash, well, then that rules that logic out. And the power of militancy is not cumulative. Uh, well, maybe General Petraeus will figure it out now that he's in the CIA. Thank you. Let's uh, get another question right back there. Ben Friedman? Right in the Yeah, in the back. There he is. I was glad to hear you, Josh Rovner, raise the distinction between um, state building and counterinsurgency, because um, it's, it's something I think is important. And uh, so uh, I, I guess I'll just ask the question, when do they not overlap and when do they overlap? It seems to me that in uh, a lot of what we did in Iraq was that was successful in terms of counterinsurgency had to do with empowering people who were not particularly interested and openly hostile previously to the Iraqi state and weren't necessarily reconciled to it. Uh, and so our success there, I think in large parts, came at the expense of state building. Um, and similarly in Afghanistan, it seems to me there's a lot of people who are insurgents um, because of state building. Uh, I don't know how many there are. Uh, you know, that's, I guess I should frame it as a question. I wonder how many of the insurgents fit in that category. Uh, you know, people who weren't particularly interested, local authority figures who weren't particularly interested in the government uh, until it became interested in them, uh, trying to police them. And, you know, we all hear horror stories about Afghan police coming into communities and doing things that would turn almost anyone into an insurgent. So. Um, I, I just wonder if uh, any of you guys could uh, comment on that a little bit and tell me how I'm wrong or how I'm right. 
Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about it briefly. I think the Iraq story is important because the Iraq analogy has been, been used to, to justify a lot of what we've done in Afghanistan recently. So we've told ourselves a, a story about what happened in Iraq. We've told ourselves a happy story. And here's how the happy story goes. Everything was going badly through 2006. The country had descended into a very nasty war, and there was all sorts of bloodletting. But then we published a new counterinsurgency manual, FM 3-24. We sent in General Petraeus and Ambassador Crocker. They implemented a new hearts and minds approach and turned things around. I don't think that's what happened at all. I think we did very good things in, in Iraq, but they had very little to do with hearts and minds. Here's what I think happened. Right? We had a very vicious set of overlapping ethnic and sectarian civil wars, which led to a lot of ethnic cleansing, as I mentioned earlier. In addition, the United States took two very opportunistic steps. The first thing they did was they, they saw that some uh, tribal chiefs in Anbar province had turned against al-Qaeda in Iraq, and we opportunistically decided to side with them, mostly because they wanted to get their smuggling money back. The next thing we did is we decided to side with Prime Minister Maliki when he decided to start cracking heads against the Shia in the south. Remember, he had strong Shia rivals, uh, and, he, and he went to war against them. Right? And there was, a, there was a moment of pause in which we did not know what, whether we would support him in his war of ethnic consolidation, but we, only, we ended up doing it. And what we're left after these two opportunistic decisions is the rough balance of power we see today with Sunni and Anbar and, and Shia in Baghdad South and the Kurds in the north. Right? Now, the, the process is far from over, and I'm, I'm actually very worried about what might happen in, in Iraq uh, next. But this didn't have a lot to do with, with counterinsurgency as, as we, we commonly define it. Now, the, your, your broader theoretical question is, can you ever have one without the other? It's a, it's a matter of degree. Um, if you have an established state which suddenly finds itself facing an upstart insurgent movement, then you can think of this as a pure counterinsurgency case. Right? On the other hand, if you've got cases like Iraq after the fall of Saddam Hussein or Afghanistan after the fall of the Taliban, this is not that case. These are fledgling regimes who are in a, in a real contest for power against very strong rivals. And I think you're into the state building game at that point. A couple of things. Um, first, I know none of us want to spend a lot of time on the history of Iraq, but let me just mostly agree with Josh, but point out that maybe we're a little better at this than he wants to let on. Uh, the Anbar Awakening and the Sons of Iraq movement was not enough to bring down violence by 80% in Iraq, which is what happened in 2007, before Maliki went after his Shia rivals in Basra in the spring of 2008. So what happened in 2007 was only partly due to the Sunni awakening and the Sons of Iraq. We got very good at just bringing down the level of violence, working with the Iraqi army. That takes a remarkable amount of diplomacy at the tactical working level. It takes a fairly good set of tactics. Uh, I agree it wasn't all due to a field manual. And it certainly wasn't all due to us. Um, but nonetheless, we did learn. And that makes us better at this stuff than a lot of people want to allege and argue. I agree we're still pretty bad at getting the development piece and the economics piece right. And I'm not trying to critique AID, per se, because part of this is the military logistics system that has really skewed the Afghan economy. So uh, one doesn't have to take the other extreme you know, to disagree a little bit with Josh. I think we are okay at this. But the central point is this is a very hard thing to do. On that point, I think, again, we can agree. However, on Afghanistan, let's not portray Afghans as primordial 
15th century, in the hills, bloodthirsty tribes that are just trying to vie for power, and we might as well stay out of their way. This was a state that sort of worked until the rest of the world, including us, screwed it up. The Soviets deserve, obviously, primary responsibility, but we went in to kick the Soviets out, and then we left. The Afghans did not have a Western-style state prior to 1979. And in fact, the unrest that led to the Soviet invasion was partly Afghan-caused. So again, I'm not trying to go to the other extreme of the argument to disagree with Josh. But the basic notion that there are no kind of working-level concepts of how to do politics well in Afghanistan, I disagree with. And moreover, there are some very good Afghan ministers and governors. We fixate a bit too much on President Karzai, partly because we wrote a constitution that gives him so much power that it's natural to fixate on him. But the quality of some of the ministers and some of the governors, by the way, all of whom he appoints, so he does some things well, even if he's got too much power in the process, some of these people are really pretty impressive. And if we stick with them a little longer, I think we've got a pretty good chance of helping them uh, rebuild their country. They don't have the kind of animosities across sectarian lines that Iraqis did. They don't have a desire to go back to the 15th century the way a lot of people portray them as doing, and nor do they hate foreigners to the point where they just want us out. Iraqis are more anti-American at this point still than Afghans. So we have a lot to work with. Doesn't mean it's easy, doesn't mean it's going to succeed, but I just want to, again, maybe more add to Josh's points than totally disagree with them. Anybody else? Okay, we'll take another question right down here in the front. Hi, John Glazer with antiwar.com. Um, the primary reason, uh, the, our primary terrorism problem uh, is with us because of U.S. imperialism. So why does every policy proposal or um, plan that we see play out uh, involve getting more entrenched militarily in the, in the Muslim world. And just answer this in the context of what Ms. Malou Innocent has taught me through her writings about the very real difference between the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. The Taliban don't have broader jihadi global aims and so on and so forth. But. So let's frame that as the implications of the mission for uh, dampening, amplifying, or not having any effect on terrorism directed at the United States, I think um, is that the... Uh, just to t take a whack at that, thank you so much. I think, um, unfortunately, a lot of people in Washington, just as any sort of entity, they seek their own sort of self-preservation, and it's natural for governments to want to respond in a way to any sort of perceivable threat by wanting to expand that interest, even though it may not necessarily be to the interests of <laughs> the entity in question. And as we've seen, af 10 years after 9-11, we've even become much more engaged in the Islamic world. Uh, we've been involved in state building and counterinsurgency uh, to a greater or lesser degree. Agree, and we've tried to meddle and tamper with these uh, with these countries and these regimes, and that's the very thing that uh, definitely sort of uh, arrays people against us. I think, unfortunately, a lot of Americans think of foreigners as aliens from outer space. They're just like you and me. They're normal human beings, and they don't want to be interfered with. They like to live their own lives, and um, occasionally we uh, we may do good in some areas, and a lot of the times we end up uh, making more of a, a hash out of things. Um, I think it's unfortunate that after the Bin Laden killing, uh, we were so focused on the idea of victory that we've won, that we've we've essentially killed the highest of high-value targets, that we forgot why we were attacked on 9-11. And I think that's really the, the overarching tragedy, is that we do support 
uh, tyrannies in the Middle East, whether that was, you know, with Egypt or Saudi Arabia or in Jordan or Algeria, and sort of supporting these uh, horrible police states is why one of the many reasons why we were attacked on 9-11, but of course, given the government and the way it's operating and uh, the basic biases, it's always in the realm of more expansion, more power, and uh, that's what we've seen. Well, um, I, I think that's also only part of the issue. I mean, everyone up here is talking about what a great idea it is that we are withdrawing from Afghanistan. So I think to say that our only response to things is to send more troops in is a little false. I mean, it goes in both directions. I think also during the Arab Spring, one lesson that you could take out of the U.S. policy apparatus is that despite Libya, which I still think is an astounding mistake, we stayed out of Egypt and we are staying out of Syria. And for the most part, we stayed out of Yemen. Even though these governments are not doing very, very good things, we are not directly interfering in their political development right now. And especially in Yemen, I find that remarkable since, contrary to what we said earlier, we actually do have several hundred troops there right now. Uh, they're primarily in a training capacity, but they're not directly influencing the political development of Yemen. They're not interfering in the politics. They're not cracking down on protesters. So despite all of that, while I would agree that in a broad sense, we tend to be over-militaristic in our response, that we're not universally militaristic. And at the same time, blaming Al-Qaeda as purely a reaction to American policy, I think, mis is, is a fundamental misunderstanding of their ideolo ideological and religious foundations, which happened well before the universal American militarism that kind of became a feature of foreign policy in the later 20th century. So when, when, when we look at these causes and effects, it's appropriate to say that there are effects to American policy, and I agree with you on that. But to say that if America just stopped fighting or stopped being overseas in some ways, that would solve terrorism, I think that's really simplistic and wrong. Right back here, you were first bite at the apple, right there in the front of the back. Yes. Hi, my name is Aicha Bacha, and I'm a political science major at Fordham University. This question is to Mr. O. Hanlon. Is that your name? Uh -huh. um, you made some comments about you know the Pakistanis or the Afghanis going back to 15th century. Don't you think that um, the America's imposition of a liberal democracy in countries like Pakistan or Afghanistan actually causes more resentment and causes more terrorism? No, no. Uh, the Afghans that I know want to be out of the mess that the world has helped them uh, suffer through in the last 30 years. Now, we can still debate whether we're capable of it, whether it's in our interest, uh, whether it's hopeless, whether it's a poor use of resources. I accept all those arguments, which is part of why I'm finding today's panel so provocative and constructive for my thinking, but the notion that Afghans don't want a modern life within their own terms and in a culturally sensitive way, I, I don't agree with. I think Afghans, now admittedly, I know more Afghans who are living in Kabul than I know Afghans who are out in the mountains of Host. So I concede that my population representation of Afghanistan is not completely uniform. And there are plenty of, uh, plenty of, of tribal Pashtun, I'm sure, who would not want anything close to what is happening to their country. Uh, but I think the bigger problem in Afghanistan right now, frankly, has to do with corruption and the inequities and the unevenness in how modern life is affecting Afghans' politics and ethnic groups. But most of them would like, at a minimum, to get out of the mess they were in in the 80s and 90s. And then once we get them to the point where they're out of that, then let them decide where they go from there. I think that's all we owe them, and that's what, something we should try to achieve. Uh, gentleman right in the back, on that side of the back. There we go. Thank you. Joshua Shippenson, MIT and the Wilson Center. 
Uh, for Mr. O'Hanlon, I guess I have two related questions. One is, in response to Mr. Rovner's comments, you kept pointing out that terrorism could reappear. Now, it's very plausible, but exactly how do you evaluate the national security? This is the issue that we're talking about, the national security interest in combating terrorism, the threat to U.S. interests. You there. And uh, I, guess, I, I guess the second issue, let's even assume that the nightmare scenario that you postulated occurs, that the Taliban take over the Afghan South. Why are we assuming that the U.S. then becomes the target, or Pakistan then becomes the target, rather than trying to redo what they did in the 90s and conquer the rest of Afghanistan? Why not fight the near enemy rather than the far? I guess I could begin by putting it this way. I agree, those are open questions. But why are you so confident that the answer is going to be the opposite of what I'm worried about, that you want to, or not you, but uh, th those, those who want to just say, let's wash our hands of this and not worry, um, are so confident? We have a group, al-Qaeda, that, by the way, since 9-11 has tried to attack us in a big way. For example, the, the major airline plot of 2006 that has still been interested in pursuing weapons of mass destruction with an eye towards attacking Western cities. Their capabilities to do so may be a lot less. But their interest in doing so, uh, at least until the death of bin Laden, had not declined. And my guess is their interest is still there. Now, I'm very happy the death of bin Laden, I think, does reduce their capability, which is part of why I consider this debate important and useful. If we fail in the next one to two years in helping Afghanistan stabilize itself, I probably will be in Josh's school. Because I don't think that Afghanistan is far and away the only place where terrorists could base themselves to the point where that must be, above all else, our priority. I don't go that far. But I would point out that is the place from which al-Qaeda organized. That is the largest potential sanctuary that I can identify on the map for them. It also happens to be a very appealing sanctuary for the Pakistani Taliban and Lashkar-e-Taiba. Although, again, in trying to be fair, I think Josh made a pretty good response to my argument. I think, there, I think if the Pakistani Taliban were in Afghanistan in the future, Pakistan would try to go after them and might have some limited success. I just don't want to assume that they'll definitely succeed. And I don't want to assume that a future al-Qaeda will definitely keep its hands off us just because they got burned once before. If you read their ideology, they are as firm and as hardline as ever. And so I think to some extent we should take them at their word and also remember their recent actions, like the 2006 attempted plot. So it's a nuanced answer, but, um, and I appreciate the question, but I, I do think that given where we are, the Afghan security forces now 300,000 strong, well on the way towards the goal of 350 that we're probably going to pursue, uh, at least halfway to the Lisbon transition point. I think it makes a lot of sense to stick with that part of the campaign plan, try to improve the politics strategy, and try to prevent this from being a sanctuary. And I, I think we have a pretty good chance. I think we probably would be best to just go back down the line and, and tie up any loose ends. Josh, did you want to? Yeah, I mean, I, I think to kind of follow up on that, while we're talking about safe havens, the two most recent al-Qaeda attacks on the U.S. were planned and executed in Yemen. So unfortunately, and this is, I think, an area where you and I would disagree, is that the logic that says we have to stay in Afghanistan to prevent terrorism says we have to go into Yemen to continue to prevent terrorism. And I think that gets back at the fundamental issue of an overly militarist response to counterterrorism sparking either additional commitments we can't sustain or additional problems we're not willing to deal with later on down the line. Um, which gets back, I think, to, to the issue about, about like, 
Afghan National Army recruitment. I mean, I, I, I think, and, and this is tangentially related, I, I thought it was interesting that, that, you, that, that you, you drew so much comfort out of the ANPs in particular, the police's ability to respond to that. I mean, the police have been responding to attacks in Kabul for, for many years. When I was there in 2009, there was a complex suicide attack on the Ministry of Justice that wasn't defeated by ISAF. It was defeated by the police, and they were very good at it, and they prevented anyone from, at least anyone good, from getting killed in the process of it. And they've done that in a lot of other provinces around the area, but to this day, we still have a hard time, and I think this gets back at laying the foundations for how we can actually make this happen in the future. They still have a hard time, uh, uh, from on the Army's perspective, planning their own operations and, and op executing them autonomously. And then, um, eh, that's probably enough for now. We can move on. Josh, did you have another yeah, final part at the end? A couple of things. I, I realized at the start of my comments, I, I promised that I would talk about President Obama's speech, and then I never did. Uh, I should say something about it. Um, I was actually cautiously optimistic by the speech. I, I think that the general direction of US policy seems to be moving more towards counterterrorism, which I think is all for the good. There are still problems. And the president once again raised the, the safe haven canard in, in the speech, which I, I, I thought was, was, was misplaced. I wish he hadn't done that. Uh, so I, I, I think there's grounds for cautious optimism. I, I also think that. In all of the discussion about the numbers still present in Afghanistan, whether or not it's, it's 95,000 or 70,000, I think we could go much, much smaller and still continue to, to, to um, productively pursue counterterrorism. We could go as low as 10 or 15,000. And finally, just, just very quickly, the last question raised a really important issue that we should all think about. How, how does the war on terrorism end? Right? How are, how are we going to, to, to come to a point at which we can decide that, that the future need not be terrifying? Right? And how, how can we end this thing? I, I think the war against terrorism, and more specifically, the war against al Qaeda, is a unique kind of war. Most wars are, are wars of coercion, in which you're, you're trying to compel the enemy to do your will. This is the classic definition of war, and this is what most wars are about. You're trying to change the enemy's behavior. This is not that kind of war. This is a war of brute force. We're not going to change al-Qaeda's behavior, and we're not going to influence them. We're not going to compel them to do our will. What the United States can do is to erode their capabilities and kill as many of them as we can find. But ultimately, the end of the war is going to be a political decision, right? Because any small group of mot motivated terrorists, if they're sufficiently committed to killing civilians, they can do it. It's not that hard. It's not that hard to kill civilians. By the way, I should mention, these are just my thoughts and don't represent the Naval War College <laughs> or the US Navy. But, but it's a serious point. The, the, the end of the war is, 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 is going to happen when the United States makes the political decision about how much risk it can tolerate. If the US is very risk tolerant, we can end the war. If the US is not risk uh, acceptant at all, uh, then, then we're going to keep fighting. Yeah, yeah, in terms of the, just the safe haven argument, I've always called it a myth. I just think you need a handful of people, and they can plot inside a house, and they could uh, definitely try and launch an attack if they have the will and the capabilities to do so. Uh, we know that at one point in time, uh, Munich was a safe haven for al-Qaeda, that Florida was a safe haven for al-Qaeda, that Spain was a safe haven for al-Qaeda. So I think the notion that um, you know terrorists only flourish in failed or fragile states, or that we must therefore sort of rebuild these countries from the bottom up is just specious on its face. 
case. Um, in terms of uh, Ben Friedman's uh, theoretical uh, question regarding uh, counterinsurgency versus state building, I'll try and take a whack at it. I, I assume maybe uh, there are components of state building that we have, search, uh, such as like IRI or from maybe National Democratic Institute, where they you know so, sort of offer assistance to various uh, uh, parties in, in foreign countries that might be a form of state building. We do that in, in Pakistan and Haiti and elsewhere. Um, so I think that's sort of a separation of coin and state building. But yeah. Mike, did you have any coda to the your contribution today? Or well, I'll just say one last okay. thing. Um, I think that. Again, we don't want to reopen big topics at this hour, but the notion that all sanctuaries are created equal is not sustainable by the evidence. The Al-Qaeda, if they could make such great use of Miami or Munich, they would have been attacking us several times since 9-11 because they haven't been able, haven't been deprived of those locations. Uh, a big sanctuary where they can rally that has the role of bringing people together, allows them to train. It still has an importance even in this day and age. Now, I don't want to say that it always has to be a big farm of a classic size and shape. And I do concede that um, we have to stay flexible in how we interpret the concept of sanctuary. But they're not all the same. And, uh, and that's an important thing to point out. Very good. I, I hope I've been an OK moderator. I've been a terrible PR guy because I failed to mention that we have copies of Josh Rovner and Austin Long's paper, Dominoes on the Duran Line, available for the plundering outside. And like any good libertarian think tank, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, we have free beer upstairs uh, after the event where we can continue the conversation. So with that, please join me in thanking our discussants for the panel today. Thank you.